Jesus and Peter have a conversation. Listen to the word of God. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Arguably, uh, one of the most famous and successful Broadway musicals of all time is Les Miserables, based on the Victor Hugo novel of the same title. Uh, It also has been made into a movie many times. There's an older version of the movie. There's a French version. Uh, There was a made-for-TV version that was pretty good. And the Broadway musical was turned into a movie that actually was also very good a few years ago. Uh, I have uh, loved the musical. I had an opportunity to hear the original cast in New York a couple times and, and enjoyed the movie as well and, and have read the book as well. So many of us have that book on the shelf and we just haven't quite gotten to it, right? Okay. But if you have that book on your shelf, you can, you, can, you can test me because I want to talk about chapter 12 of uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Probably one of the very important scenes early on in the book that really is the transformative moment for Jean Valjean is when, after he had been welcomed by the uh, archbishop into the house, uh, and he steals the silver from the archbishop, um, and he is arrested. He's caught. Now, one of the things that we don't get in the movie or the musical is there's, there's a kind of a very humorous dialogue between uh, the housekeeper and the bishop before Jean Valjean's brought back. And uh, she's upset. Uh, she's kind of scolding the bishop for letting this person in the house. And uh, they go through, well, what, what will we eat? She goes, what are we going to eat on now? And he goes, well, we can use pewter. And she goes, no, that stinks. And then she go through all this. And he finally says, well, we can use wood spoons. And the bishop says, it never really belonged to us anyway. That silver always should have been for the poor anyway. And so the gendarmes bring in Jean Valjean, and if you remember the very powerful scene where they have brought him into the, into the bishop's room and they are roughing him up and they said, we've caught this man who stole from you. He said that you gave him this silver, to which the archbishop brings out these, these silver candlesticks and said, 
you know, you forgot the candlesticks as well, my friend. And the policemen eventually leave. And here's how the chapter ends. Jean Valjean was like a man on the point of fainting. The bishop drew near to him and said in a low voice, Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Jean Valjean, who had no recollection of ever having promised anything, remained speechless. The bishop had emphasized the words when he uttered them. He resumed with solemnity. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. It is your soul that I buy from you. I withdraw it from black thoughts and the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And thus, Jean Valjean begins a new life. This idea of restitution, how do we make things right? The disciples are back in the Galilee. Now, how did they get there? Now, if you remember on Easter Sunday, one of the things I said is that the resurrection narratives are very confusing, and it makes sense that they're confusing, because how do you talk about such a strange event? Um, and one of the things you will find is both Mark and John seem to have two different endings, all right? Um, you could really have ended the Gospel of John with chapter 20 last week. But there's another chapter, and um, it seems to be an alternative ending. And I had a professor who one time thought that chapter 21 may actually be the ending, the missing ending of Mark. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but in Mark... Peter's story is kind of central. And in Mark, you never really get Peter reconciled to Jesus. So in some levels, it's, it's nice to think that John 21 kind of is the end story of, of Peter. And if you remember the end of Mark, chapter 16, uh, the angel appears to the women and says this, Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going before you to the Galilee. Now, if you're sitting in the room when the women come back and relay this story, how would it feel to be Peter? The women came in, come in, they're all excited, and said, we, the angel of Jesus is resurrected. Well, what did they say? What did they say? They said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Now, Maybe it was just for emphasis. But if you're Peter living with the guilt of what you've done, of denying Jesus, how would you have heard that? I'm no longer part of the group. I can see Peter's head slowly bowing and no one else makes eye contact with him. Now I'm sure his brother Andrew tried to comfort him Maybe John and James joked with him, saying, oh, you always were his favorite. <laughs> Maybe Thomas took him aside and said, hey, man, I've been here. <laughs> I know what this feels like, right? 
But there are a few things lonelier than loss and failure. Peter was dealing with both at the same time. Now, most of us have lived long enough to probably have had our fair share of loss and failure. And actually, you don't have to live too long at all to experience failure. And unfortunately, too many experience loss and grief at tender ages. I'm not a huge baseball fan anymore, um, but yeah, the Phillies are bringing me back a little bit. But some of my favorite movies are baseball movies. And one of them, and I, you know, this movie, what's 40 years old now, The Natural? Remember The Natural? is based on a book. The book is kind of different than the, than the movie. The movie has a happy ending. The book doesn't. All right. But if you remember The Natural, Robert Redford, uh, it begins with this person who maybe would have been the greatest pitcher of all time. Okay. As a young man, he gets recruited. Matter of fact, there's a scene where he strikes out somebody who's supposed to be Babe Ruth in an exhibition. But before he even gets to begin his career, he's caught up in a scandal. Uh, he gets shot uh, by a scandalous woman, and he disappears. Well, 18, 19 years later, he shows up. And he is this uh, 30, older 30-something rookie phenomenon. But towards the end of the book, his injury comes back to haunt him. The bullet is still in him. And it looks like he's going to ruin the chance for the team to win the pennant. And there's a love interest in, in the book, uh, in the story, um, played by Glenn Close. And Roy Hobbs, the Robert Redford character, is in the hospital. He's bemoaning the fact that he's not going to get to help the team. And he says this. I guess some mistakes you never stop paying for. Some mistakes you never stop paying for. But to this, Iris Gaines says this. You know, I believe we have two lives. Roy Hobbs says, how? What do you mean? The life we learn with and the life we live after that. The life we learn with and the life we live with after that. It is true, some mistakes, some failures change us forever, just like some tragedies. Okay. The difference maybe between a tragedy and a mistake is that we go, you know, maybe if there's a tragedy, we think through, well, how could have things been maybe different, right? What if I had gone to the train station? Uh, what if I, whether they just have waited one minute longer, right? We, you can do that kind of thinking in terms of tragedies. But with mistakes, the truth of the matter is that we are responsible for those things. No one made Peter deny Jesus three times. No one made him declare that he would never deny Jesus. And so when, when the women say that the angels, angel said, tell the disciples and Peter, Peter maybe thinks that he will pay for his denial for the rest of his life. But the good news of the gospel is that because of Christ, the life that we are saved from is the basis of the new life that we live after that. So, 
John 21 has them in the Galilee. All right. Don't try to harmonize Luke. Luke, they just stay in Jerusalem in Luke. But in John and in Mark and Matthew, they end up back in the Galilee. All right. And it makes sense for them to go back in the Galilee, right? Because it's still not safe in Jerusalem. Remember, the, their leader was killed, executed as a capital criminal, as an insurrectionist. Okay? The Romans did not mess around with that. Okay? Uh, you were guilty and never presumed innocent if you were a, uh, in the Roman view. Matter of fact, it didn't matter if you were guilty anyway. If you're close, we'll kill you. It's a good way to settle things. So Peter and them, they're back in the Galilee, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, my guess is this wasn't recreational, right? <laughs> you know, because what was he before he started following Jesus? He was a fisherman. So either they're hungry or they need to start making a living again or both. So they go fishing and they're out fishing all night and they catch nothing. If you know your gospel stories, does that sound familiar? In Luke's gospel, this is how the whole story starts. And one of the things I think that's interesting here is whether it's at the beginning of Peter's story, as it is in Luke, or whether it's at the end of Peter's story, at least from the gospel perspective, they work all night and they got nothing for their work. And we're reminded of the limitations of this world, right? Okay. The world will find ways to frustrate you. <laughs> you don't have to go out and look for frustration, right? How many times have we worked as hard as we could with no results? How many times, whether it be at work, how about, you know, with our kids? We keep trying and trying to help them learn something and they just don't seem to learn it. Or maybe even like in churches, we keep trying and keep trying, but our nets keep coming up empty. It's not accidental that Jesus shows up when humans have come to their limits. Because when we have tried everything we could, when we keep hitting that wall, we can't really lie to ourselves about our invincibility. There comes a point where you can't live in denial about this is just not working out. I've tried. I've tried. I don't know what else to do. Those are the times we're probably most honest with ourselves. And those are the times we're most open to find God. Or, at least in this case, allow God to find us. So, Jesus shows up. <laughs> and, you know... He's, this guy's on the shore. Remember, he's dead. Remember, he died. Okay, he's crucified. Okay, he appeared once or twice, but he's 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 resurrected. Okay, so he's not around. And suddenly they're fishing, and suddenly this guy on the on the shore is going, "Hey, how's it going?" Now, if someone had risen from the dead, I would want to hear something else other than, "Hey, how's the fishing going?" I would have some question, but Jesus shows up. Hey, how you doing? How's it going? It's something. It's the Lord. And then I love this. Peter puts on his clothes and then jumps into the water. Okay. Now, again, I know they stripped down when they were fishing to barely nothing. Okay. All right. But still, I always kind of picture him like Robin Williams or somebody. You know, he gets dressed. He's so excited. He gets dressed and then jumps into the water. 
And probably halfway there, he says, I should have left my clothes off as he's swimming 100 yards. Okay? It's not a small distance, right? He's swimming 100 yards. So he swims, and he gets there, and what is, Jesus makes him breakfast. Again, he's risen from the dead. He's the Lord of all heaven. I, I think I would want to hear, well, what's it like? What's it all about? Instead, hey, you're hungry. I'm making some breakfast. And there's a, and they just kind of it's it's what I love about this is they just kind of sit around looking at each other and no one says anything you know like and no one even says well, hey how how's being dead how's that going Jesus you know how yeah. <laughs> can you just tell us what it's like a little bit no I mean everybody's just not you know uh, someone maybe someone goes hey good fish Jesus thanks you know <laughs> you know whatever <laughs> what's in this fish it's a nice I like this little thing you did with that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's such a strange story. So anyway, they finish. They, and one other thing I think is funny. To make, just to make it even weirder for us, they tell us how many fish there are. 153 fish. Do you realize how much energy for the last 1,900 years has been spent trying to figure out what 153 means? Okay. Particularly if you're a church historian, you can find all kinds of interesting sermons. One of the things, those of you who are math people, I just want to throw, I, I've always ignored this. All right, but I, I want to just give you something because I was fascinated by this, and I don't math is not my strong point. But 153 has several mathematical properties. It is the sum of the first 17 integers. It also is associated with the geometric shape known as visia piscis, which is a Venn diagram, two circles. It's so so. I don't know. Maybe John invented the Venn diagram. I don't know. All right. By the way, it's kind of the imperfect square root of three as well. Right? And the other thing, maybe John is just playing with us a little bit because Archimedes called it the uh, measurement of the fish. So, I don't know. <laughs> maybe John just wanted to mess with all the Pythagoreans out there. I don't know. But anyway, so there's that number. To make the thing even weirder, we have a number. So then Jesus and Peter begin their conversation. Now, the sacrament of penance was probably the reason that the was the chief reason the Reformation happened. This idea of you have to make right the sins you've committed in the world against people. It's, it, this is sacrament of penance is not about making things right with God because Jesus does that. But in the Catholic Church, you do penance to try to make things right here in the world. At least that's that's what the Church officially teaches. But by the late medieval Church, it was such a corrupt. Um, it had become so corrupt and so uh, problematic that um, you know I think Luther and Calvin, if they could have figured out a way to reform the sacrament of penance, they would have, but they couldn't. They couldn't figure it out. Now, according to the great Catholic teacher Thomas Aquinas, there are three conditions necessary for penance: contrition, which is sorrow for sin, together with the purpose for amendment; confession of sins means you, without any omission. You have to lay it all out there. And then satisfaction by doing some good work. Okay? Now, this scene has often been painted as Peter's penance, right? So let's think. How does he, does he do it right? Does he get it right? Well, first of all, I think Peter certainly demonstrates sorrow immediately after the denial. Remember, the gospel says when he denied Jesus, he wept bitterly. And again, when Jesus is questioning him, Peter gets upset, right? Because, okay, because what? How many questions does Peter ask him? Or does Jesus ask him? Three? 
Why the number three? Right. Okay. So both Peter and Jesus know what's going on here. And Peter gets upset again to be reminded of his error. And Jesus gives him good work to do. Take care of my people. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. But do you notice in this passage, Peter is not able to fully confess how he had failed Jesus. Right? We don't have Peter saying, I'm really sorry that I denied you. Peter is not fully able to confess how he had failed Jesus. In that sense, Peter's post-resurrection encounter with Jesus is far less satisfying than the one with either Mary Magdalene or with Thomas. Now, if you actually look at the dialogue between Jesus, a little bit of Greek is both helpful and maybe dangerous as well. Okay? Much has been made over the years. Jesus is asking the first two times in Greek, agape mi plion toton. Agape. Right? You, that word should be familiar with you. Uh, the word for love that has come to mean divine love, unconditional love. Now, that unique meaning of agape maybe doesn't come into existence after, until after the first century. Actually, Christians may have taken agape and given it special meaning, particularly John's and the Apostle Paul. So, Jesus is asking Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, su odius oti filio si. Now, you know the word filio, right? Philadelphia. Brotherly love. So Jesus is saying, Do you agape me? Peter is saying, Filio. Now, what this might mean is Jesus is asking for a higher love, and Peter is offering him brotherly love. It is interesting, the third time Jesus asked the question, he switches to the form filio. So the first two times, do you agape? Do you agape? The last time he goes, filio. And maybe Jesus figures, this is the best this guy can do. Maybe this also is the shadow side of our apostolic and contemporary faith. None of us fully own how we fail Jesus. Now we're good at pointing out what's wrong with other people. <laughs> but I think we do that in part because we don't want to fully look at our own failures, right? In the long run, like Peter, God gives us meaningful work to do in this world, less for the sake of those we serve but that someday we might actually discover the depth of Christ's mercy in our own failures and inadequacies. The life you save may be your own. It seems to me that it would have been much more honest if the sequence of Peter's responses were something like this. Jesus says, do you love me? Peter says, you know, I love you the best that I can. Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? 
You know I'm going to fail, Lord, but I will try. Third time, do you love me, Peter? I cannot do this. Please help me. Neither the resurrection nor the gift of the Spirit, which in John's Gospel, they get the Spirit in chapter 20, neither of these things magically transform Peter into a flawless and faith-filled man. The rock of the church is crumbly. It's not granite, it's shale. Just like you and me. It's obvious, at least it's obvious to me, and I think John wants it to be obvious to all of us, that Jesus' last early, earthly conversation with Peter, in that Peter is still a work in progress, like you and me. The good news is that Jesus knew all too well the limitations of Peter, yet Jesus still loved him, met him where he was, and gave him important work to do, just like you and me. Yesterday, Rachel Held Evans died at the age of 37. She leaves behind a husband, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. She was a popular Christian writer. Um, she had grown up in strong, very fundamentalist, conservative backgrounds, became disillusioned with that, kind of had rejected the faith, but found herself back in faith, but with a different kind of way of looking at the Christian life. So her books were very helpful in her speaking, particularly for people who came out of that kind of strict, rigid Christianity, uh, couldn't live and believe that anymore, but still uh, had faith in Christ. So she had a profound impact and died way, way too young and died tragically. This is one of her quotes, which I think ties all this together, particularly as we go to this table. The reason that we come to the Lord's table is not because we are worthy, not because we've worked it out, not because of the post-resurrection faith, we now triumphantly march to the table of Christ. No, we come because he invites us, accepting us as we are, knowing that we need to be better, but loving us nonetheless. Rachel Evans says this, but the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. It needs a family of sinners, saved by grace, committed to tearing down the walls, throwing open the doors, and shouting, Welcome, there's bread and wine. Come eat with us and talk. This isn't a kingdom for the worthy. It's a kingdom for the hungry. Probably no one more broken or hungrier than St. Peter. Yet, through this very compromised, broken man, the kingdom of God came into the first century. It's through our broken, incomplete faith that God is still communicating his love and salvation to the world. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us stand again and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.